Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luer, and today we're heading to Paris to connect with my good buddy, Lucien Boyer. Welcome to the podcast, Lucien. Well, good morning, Marcus, and good morning, everyone. Happy to be with you today. Yes, good morning there in Paris. Uh, and uh, most people would recognize you, of course, from your almost two decades at the helmet of Havas Sports and Entertainment, you know, part of the large Havas uh, advertising and media group, uh, or part even of Vivendi, um, that might not, not even might know that part. Um, but you have been around the block a lot longer than that, not just uh, what you've done there. Uh, you have a it's really interesting career starting all the way at the very beginning with uh, with America's Cup there. Um, and of course, a lot of very interesting things you've done really over the last couple of years here, uh, which we're going to be diving deep into um, over the next hour here. So, uh, you know, like I said, you know, you are, I think, someone who's fairly well known in the industry. So I won't go into too much um, of intro here and I'd rather go straight in and, and start digging around your amazing career uh, and stories here. And what I'd love to start off with, um, and again, This is sort of the fun part when I when I really do some homework and, and study, of course. Um, even though we're long, we've been friends for a long time, I don't think I ever knew um, your history on you know the America's Cup and, and even what you did in Formula One there in the early days. So I'd love to hear that part, um, how it all started as a young Frenchman um, there coming out of university and getting involved in the French Challenger boat for the America's Cup. <laughs> well, yes, that's... Fantastic memories. Actually, it's a long all started. Time ago, huh? <laughs> yes, actually, um, you know, um, I don't feel that old when I remember that because I feel I, I would uh, certainly do the same today. And uh, I've always been um, uh, passionate about um, uh, what I'm doing. So I, I keep on uh, keeping the, the same passion. But yeah, la long time ago, um, I was a student with um, SAIC Business School and, uh, you know, uh, France at that time was a socialist country. We had uh, François Mitterrand just been elected a couple of years before and uh, our economy was not great. So the franc went down from, uh, I remember it was something like four francs a dollar to 10 francs a dollar. Oh, wow. So the oh, guys wow. who have planned the um, French Challenge, the America's Cup, Actually, uh, if, 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 you, if you want a little bit of history here, we have a very famous um, figure in France, Baron Bic, who invented the Bic pens. And he was um, the one who uh, founded the America's Cup in the early days of the French participation. Okay. But he, okay. he, he did not follow on. So somebody took... Um, the um, uh, to to took his, uh, his his legacy, but he didn't have enough money, so okay. he had to find a way, and he uh, reached out to students. Uh, funnily enough, to try to have uh, youngsters uh, trying to raise money uh, in the um, uh, Anglo-Saxon way, way, which was not very uh, use, um, usual in France at that time, and I was pa passionate enough to really. Uh, take a lot of my time to raise money for that bid who desperately oh, wow. need wow. to fill the gap. And this is the way I uh, won that. I, I think I raised something like $200,000 at that time. Okay. But for a student, it was not bad. And I was then um, elected um, the most valuable player. And um, I was uh, invited to go and just attend the, the 
the Americans Cup in Newport, but I, I negotiated against that an internship, and I spent six months helping the team to really um, prepare for for the event. And during the summer, I went there. I was 19. I was part of the team, and my job was to raise money every morning by selling T-shirts that had been made overnight. Uh, in the shop, in the souvenir shop, and uh, I took the money from the day every evening to give it to the cook so he could buy the meal for the team. That's the wow. kind of short circle. And <laughs> in those days, you saw the impact you had uh, raising money for the team because it was absolutely a survival kit. <laughs> wow. Uh, what a great way to get into the industry as well. I love that. I, uh, that's definitely a new one. I've never heard this one. Uh, that, that beats some of the others who you know started off as... Uh, interns and others so that, that i love that what a great way so so that so you had a then it was sort of i guess you know here i can see it was about two years or so um and then it was a yes yeah, well six six months but in it was not in 1985 it was in 83 when the australian oh, okay. beat the american for the first time you know the americans cup has been kept by the americans for 132 years until until that day right. and uh, so it was a, a big thing, and it was an, a major uh, um, media blow. And, and I was there in uh, in Newport when the OCs won. And for me, it was uh, I, I realized how uh, sport could be impactful because everybody I knew around the world knew about that event. And, and of course, there was no internet, there was nothing. But I realized talking with people how impactful this event was uh, and from one location you can really reach out to the world and what I realized as well is that even if our French team was quite amateur um, the Anglo-Saxon team were very professional the American the Australian who won the Canadian the English they all had professional yeah. marketers and I realized that learning uh, marketing at school uh, I could also align it with my passion for sports and this was the very beginning of uh, my uh, uh, direction of travel. I realized that that could be a, a business for me, which before that moment, I had no idea. I just came to have fun with the America's Cup. I had no idea that that could be a real there's, career. There's a business behind it, right? Yeah, I love that. That's a great story. That's a great warm-up. So I, I kind of skip a little bit over your, your year there in Saatchi, unless there's anything interesting there. And I, I, But I wanted to touch on... The I'm not sure I pronounce it properly. The La Rousse Lamborghini Formula One yeah. team, where you spend again a couple of years there. It's we're still in the sort of later '80s now here. Um, how did that happen? You know, how did you sort of uh, ended up in that in that role? Yeah, well, very simply, I was with Sachi and Sachi. I, I I tried to find a sports marketing. Uh, uh, um, job in France coming back from Australia because the, the long story short is after the America's Cup was won by the Australian I went to Australia spent two years because I thought that this was a new frontier for me mm. and that's when the America's Cup was held in Australia and I learned a lot because I worked around that field and also I um, attended the first uh, Rugby World Cup 1987 oh, when France oh. went in semi-final I was one of the few Frenchmen against the uh, 15,000 OCs and, <laughs> and France won. So it's a great memory of as, as a fan. But yeah, a long story, 
come back to France, find a job at Saatchi and Saatchi and learn the basic of marketing. Yeah. But I realized yeah. that the whole efforts we made, and this is very interesting, the insights, the planning, the strategic planning, everything. Mm. At the end of the day, you have a 30 minute commercial and all the work you do is just for 30 minute commercial, which is, in fact is a commercial break. So it's a moment where you break the program. And what happened was I was, um, I worked very hard on, um, uh, TVC actually was produced with the help of um, um, a very, very famous uh, director uh, from um, uh, Los Angeles. And mm-hmm. we had this video conference was uh, very expensive to uh, make, you know, the choice of the spoon that would be on the pack shot. And all this work, it, I think it was costing something like $10,000 uh, to just uh, have the uh, uplink satellite a video conference okay. just for a pre-production okay. meeting to choose the the spoon that would go on the top of the lid of the yogurt pot that was a commercial okay. um, and, and that will be seen for one second right. and and so right. i come back home and then what i do is i watch a, a, a football match where juventus turin was playing with danone on this on the shirt and i realized that my client had no idea that there was a tv uh Broadcasting uh, for 90 minutes, it's his brand on the face of a jersey of a premium team because that was a local decision in uh, Italy and the global brand director had no idea. And that 90 minutes of engagement really stroked my imagination and was thinking, okay, all the story I tried to say in 30 minutes, in 30 seconds, sorry, which is going to be aired at... Um, halftime. Yeah. I'm not going to see it because I'm going to uh, have a break myself. Yeah. And there is no way um, I can uh, engage as much as I do when I, as a fan, watch the team playing with the Danone brand on. Why don't we tell the story of advertising in the program instead of breaking the program and having this kind of bubble of advertising? So next day yeah. I, went, I went to my boss at Sachi. And said that, and he said, well, great idea, but how do you make money out of that idea? And I, I, I must say I was like 22. I had no idea about the business model. <laughs> so that's where I thought I need to go and, and, and understand and learn. And that's when I quit Saatchi and joined the Formula One team that hired me because I thought that it was the most mature and the most developed uh, shape of uh, sports marketing at that very early days in the 80s mm. and that's the way I really chose this uh, experience to really learn and I did learn very much over the three first seasons of Formula One when I joined this team. Um, mm-hmm. It was a very small team actually, we didn't have much money but my job was to raise money, actually I raised much more than the early days with uh, the America's Cup, we went from 20 million to 70 million to 120 million the third year, wow. uh, that's French francs at the time, so it's, mm. but, but it's quite big growth, yeah. and um, it was a fantastic team driven by uh, race uh, director Gérard Larousse, yeah. and with um, a, a great uh, a bunch of, of uh, uh, of, of drivers, uh, French drivers, very uh, talented, but also a Japanese one, Aguri Suzuki. Yeah. And the team went from nowhere to um, its first podium, that was my last Grand Prix in 1990, uh, first podium in Suzuka. But what we learned is that because we had no chance to really be seen on TV, at that time you could see only the Ferraris and the McLarens, hmm. the only way for us to um, justify the uh, uh, sponsorship dollars that we got 
was to create amazing activations. And that's where I started to have a lot of uh, ideas on how to uh, tell stories about brands that sponsor Formula One instead of just trying to have a, a big exposure of their logos on the um, on the body of the of the Formula right. One uh, racing right. cars. I tried to tell stories and to uh, create content. So it was a very, very early uh, form of branded content and uh, and content marketing. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I, I can see how that is shaping also knowing what you've obviously done at Havasen for so many years. Uh, have some of those early stories which you're now sharing, how that all shaped uh, what you were doing after. I, I, it was really cool. Uh, I have to admit, I never really realized that Lamborghini ever was an F1. Um, uh, so uh, so that was a partnership so, with the owner, I guess, right? with, who was, was he still driving at the same time as well? Or how did it work? It was very serious at that time. Actually, Lamborghini was uh, has been acquired by Chrysler. And at that time, Lee Ayakoka was the CEO of Chrysler. And okay. that was a very important strategy to, uh, you know, try to match with Ferrari. And yeah, right. they hired Ferrari's uh, chief engineer, Mauro Forgeri, to lead the Formula One V12 uh, amazing new engine that they created. Right. So that right. was a very first. They 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 they, um, they tried their best. The problem was that it was, uh, I would say, uh, not reliable at all. So the first Grand Prix we used the the Lamborghini, the the car the car actually was very fast and we had very fast drivers. So we could qualify quite high on the grid. But the problem was that it was not reliable at all. So the it, first it Grand Prix, last. <laughs> no, it didn't, it didn't start. <laughs> so okay. we, we, all the cars, uh, you know, they, they started and ours was just stuck and we had to push with the mechanics. We, you could still do that after all the, the pack uh, uh, started. So it was not a very uh, glorious beginning. And <laughs> yes, actually the, the, the engine never lasts very long. So, um, we never had a very great season with the Lamborghini. Actually, they did only one season okay. and then they, they stopped. Oh, right. Then they okay. stopped. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It was just a try and a failure, but a big learning for everyone. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, I, I have to admit, uh, this is, was a bit before I, F1 really came, showed up on my radar. So clearly I don't know some of that history there. I love it. Uh, At that now, time it was pretty pro-Sena, you know, the, the big, big yeah, battle. Correct. 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 Yeah. Awesome. Now, then obviously, you know, coming out of that, uh, you know, the experience you had there for several years, um, it appears to me you set up your own agency, right? Uh, lifestyle Marketing Group. Well, actually, it was uh, it was not my own. I was uh, a partner in it. I was okay. an entrepreneur, but mm -hmm. I was backed by LMG in the U.S. Okay. And um, as 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 you uh, interviewed recently, Claude Ribol, yes. um, he was yes. the one who uh, offered me to um, start the French branch of that uh, U.S. Uh, Sachi-owned company. Actually, ah, right. I kept a good relationship with Sachi and Sachi. And when they decided to, uh, actually, Robert Weidreifus, you know, the um, uh, former, uh, and uh, he, he's been the owner of okay. Adidas. Adidas, yes, uh, absolutely. Yes. But at that time, he was yes. the CEO of Sachi and Sachi. Okay. And he believed in sports, so he developed this um, U.S., company. And as, uh, I had this idea and I pitched it to the, um, you know, the chairman of Sachi and Sachi France before I left to formula one. Right. Then when you realize that they had this in mind for the U S uh, he, he, he said to uh, Claude who is, who was in charge in the U S why don't you, uh, go and, um, 
meet Lucien, he's in Formula One, but he's the kind of guy who could do that for us. So I, it was kind of a startup incubated mm. by uh, Sachi and Sachi. Got it. Okay. Well, that's a nice way. That, that always helps if you have a little bit of firepower behind it. Um, and so what was the, again, uh, you know, lifestyle marketing can mean anything. Uh, what is it really what you were focusing on? The, the the idea was really to leverage uh, the um, passion of people to really uh, help brands to activate sponsorship beyond the traditional uh, awareness and and even even uh, hosp and hospitality even sales promotion using sports was very uh, uh, very uh, minor at that time. Mm. So what we tried to do was to help uh, brand to strategize. And uh, my my, um, my my experience with the um, uh, more traditional, uh, um, let's say, more traditional uh, uh, marketing uh, platform with advertising helped me to um, adapt to sports, um, what we could have called sports planning. And we tried to uh, build our uh, recommendation on insights and measurements and trying to have some... Uh, Uh, elements that will help not to just choose tactical uh, projects, hmm. but give uh, more uh, uh, tangible, uh, rational reasons for brand to invest in the longer term and uh, with a more uh, ambitious thing. So what happened was it was in 91 and the um, Olympic Games were coming to Europe. Uh, Albertville 92 for the ah, Winter okay. Games and then okay. 92. Okay. at that time you remember the Olympics were being the same year winter and summer it was the last time actually so 92 was a very symbolic year for Europe because Europe was um, opening its borders it was the first uh, time the European market was really tangible for European citizens uh, and uh, uh, Europe wanted to uh, take advantage of the Olympic Games being hosted by two European countries sure, to say yeah, Europe right. is Barcelona right at the same time that's right yes exactly and so we actually pitched um, a, a very big uh, business opportunity from the European community who wanted to use uh, sports as a way to uh, engage citizens mm. so it was uh, quite an interesting uh, communication strategy and we won that on the principle that we would not spend um because they, they decided to put 10 million uh 10 to 12 million um euros it was eqs at, at that time it was euros uh to support uh, uh the two organizing committee mm -hmm. and our strategy was not to say okay you have spent that so now we will have a big advertising campaign to say to the world that you've done that mm -hmm. we said look if you have that we could use it as a lever to negotiate with the uh, ocog uh, the um, albertville olympic committee organization and barcelona mm -hmm. on how europe can be seen as a sponsor okay so we in, in we, we so, so that was a strategy of brand content using the european flag as one of the brand being seen and actually as it was not a brand you could uh, match with the uh, clean stadium policy of uh, the olympic games so actually you we negotiated the olympic flag to be seen during the ceremonies part of the show so mm -hmm. for example The um, uh, Barcelona Stadium was lit by uh, um, a, a TIFO mm -hmm. with a, 
uh, light sticks that uh, <laughs> there was no lead at that time, but light stick that you could break and it was, you know, uh, in your hands as as a, as a spectator. And the whole stadium was lit with the 12 um, golden stars on a blue background all right. around the stadium. Right. And that was a negotiation we had against this uh, sponsorship. And the rest was very much about how to put the European uh, story within the athletes' village within the um, the Olympic sites, a lot of uh, content that was also produced and uh, was toured around Europe with um, with a truck mm. that told the story with a flame. So it was very early days, but it was really a, a 360 platform, and that was the very beginning of the uh, LMG. Uh, roster of clients because that started like we opened the the the, the shop in uh, March 91 and the pitch was in uh, April and we won it in May wow. so from that moment the Olympic Games was a year after so we started with two people and in July we were already 15 and wow. a year later we were 25 so wow. it was very uh, speed uh, <laughs> But, yeah, but that, again, that's incredible. The, yeah, I love it. The big events always helped me to lift it because the, the, the next step with this was the 98 World Cup in France, yes, where course, after yes. a slow beginning, because even 92 was uh, opening the eyes of, of marketers, but not as much as it, as it did in other countries. Hmm. 98 was the moment where really people realized that the power of sports to uh, drive marketing was really big. With the with the World Cup and especially France, uh, yep, uh, winning it. <laughs> so uh, that was the second step. So my my LMG uh, story was really between the '92 and the '98, mm. which helps uh, helped us to really be much more credible uh, in terms of uh, an, an agency, not just a specialist of sports. Right. And how much was the, let's say you were leaning on, on Saatchi for certain things, or was it really, you guys are running out there mostly on your own? How, how would you describe that? Actually, it was, it, it was, this integration was a failure. It didn't work out. The, the, actually Robert Louis-Dreyfus left Saatchi very mm. quickly after I, I did this deal with uh, LMG mm -hmm. and he acquired, uh, Adidas from, uh, from from uh, the Dassler family, yes. and so with him, the drive of sports left the company as well, and they decided that. And actually, it was not a great moment for Sachi and Sachi. The two brothers were also they also left. So mm. um, after having been really at the top, Sachi was uh, getting headwinds. It uh, and 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 so, so they were focusing on trying to uh, you know solve their own problems. So the uh, diversification that I was uh, driving was not of interest. So I had to do it on my own. Yeah, and that's you were left why alone a bit, but I get it. Exactly. And, and so we, we, we run our own client list. We got uh, uh, you know, to the market on our own, hmm. and there was no much uh, synergy. So that's the reason why actually I took over and I, buy, I bought it out. From Sachi as Sachi, I had only 15%, so I, I bought out the, the remaining 85% hmm. and became independent hmm. just before the uh, uh, Soccer World Cup. And after the Soccer World Cup, as we demonstrated that we could be really uh, uh, a strong um, player in that field, we, we got uh, uh, four out of the eight uh, uh, sponsors of the French committee, right. including Hewlett-Packard right. out of the US and Manpower 
but also Credit Agricole. We started to work with Coca-Cola at that time as well. So that made us a quite attractive independent agency. Mm. And what we could not do with Sachi and Sachi, I thought that maybe we could do it with Havas. And that's where we joined Havas a little bit later, because that was the idea of having a uh, uh, powerhouse and especially a, a global network because the the thing that uh, of us being independent in front at that moment was we didn't have enough uh, you know uh, uh, strength to to pitch for for really global businesses right. and right. and I realized working with HP on the on the World Cup '98 that uh, that was the most difficult part of our relationship because they were really uh, keen to have people um, with a big network well. But they wanted the big network, exactly. Mm -hmm. So we had to mm -hmm. compromise a lot, whereas with a bigger network, it was much easier. Got it. Yeah, it makes sense. Now, before we move into a bit more of the Hava side of the story here, so at the end, um, before you, and you can, was it a merger or an acquisition or, or exactly, maybe we'll talk about that as well, but how large was the agency at that time? How many people, and, and maybe you know, if you have a rough number of turnover or, or whatever the way you would measure it, well, actually, yes. When um, when I uh, sold uh, LMG to uh, Havas, we were uh, having a turnover of about thirty million uh, euros, mm, nice. with about uh, thirty-five people. Right. Um, right. And right. that that was uh, so. So actually, what happened was we we um, we sold. Uh, uh, Fifty-one percent of the company, and we kept forty-nine uh, percent for a while. And those mm, those early days with Havas didn't work out very well. We actually <laughs> didn't know what would happen, and what happened was they it, it's it's they 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 wanted to uh, to play big, which was good. But what they did was they, they acquired the uh, ISL France branch because ah, it is okay. exactly the moment where an ISL uh, uh, went. Uh, yeah, problems. Exactly. And so uh, Havas decided to buy ISL France. But ISL France was, in fact, um, not very well structured. They, they, they tried to uh, compete against Jean-Claude Darmont at the time, the founder mm -hmm. of Sport5. Mm -hmm. who run, let's say, two-thirds of the French uh, football club. And so they had decided to uh, manage the rights of the other third, but of, obviously it was not the best one, mm -hmm. the best third. Mm -hmm. And they put down a lot of money as upfront uh, um, minimum guarantees. Mm -hmm. And we had to uh, uh, integrate this business in our uh, consulting, because my, my business was much more consulting driven. So right. long story short, right. at the beginning, I, I, I gave, I mean, when we merged the company, 80% came from ISL and the kind of uh, right marketing uh, branch. 20% mm -hmm. was the consulting and activation branch. And uh, after four years, the 20% became 80% and the 80% became 20%. Okay. And so I, I multiplied by four my business, but their side of the business became really, really uh, less and less profitable. So when I say it was not great, it's because it was a hard work to, uh, you know, uh, um, grow. But at the end of the day, you couldn't see it because the whole thing was still at the same uh, level. Right. So we were under the big pressure of the group uh, to deliver better. I, I did my best, but I couldn't do more. So 
that's the moment where I took over the whole company because during that moment I was just in charge of the of the consulting part and I had to cope with a different kind of management. So when we were freed from that, uh, and that's the beginning of uh, uh, 2004, we started to be uh, much better off. And something happened then, which was very important for me, which was the takeover of Havas by Vincent Bolloré, mm-hmm. um, because in that first four years, uh, I couldn't expand the network as I would have loved because I had to cope with the problems in France. So it was a little bit like um, a missed opportunity. So I was almost on my way out when Bolloré came and he uh, actually was not a sports fan at all, but he understood what we tried to do. He was very interested in the concept of this kind of agency, which was mm-hmm. obviously quite different from the, the, the bulk of the industry. Yeah. And he kind of gave me his support. And with his support, I could then start the a global expansion that we have loved to do. And so that started only in 2005 afterwards. And that's when uh, Hava Sports Entertainment became really what I wanted it to be after those early days within Havas, which didn't work very well. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, and it, it, uh, there's a lot of similarities here. Now, it, it, you obviously then grew it. Uh, again, some of the numbers I've seen here, um, 600 people, 30, 30 countries. I don't know whether that's 30 offices or that's uh, where you were operating sort of in within 30 countries. I mean, that's a large number and that's a lot of people. Um, you know, ha- that is over how many years, uh, you know, from the time you just talking about we grew it from 2006 to, uh, to uh, sorry, yeah, 2006. We opened the first uh, uh, international branches in um, in um, in Spain and in the UK, but actually, in, and in China. Sorry, because we wanted to be ready for the Olympic Games, mm-hmm. and then we mm-hmm. expanded it over the course of six years. So okay. it was okay. quite a fast growth. Uh, actually, most of those were startups. Uh, some of them were uh, acquisitions, especially in the UK okay. and okay. in the US. So, uh, but but we really had uh, uh, twenty. Uh, yes, we had uh, thirty agencies out of twenty-five countries. What we did also is, so in some countries, we hide people from the Sachi, from the uh, sorry, Havas agencies, and 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 uh, spin off some of the businesses to create. Uh, proper agencies uh, named uh, Hava Sports Entertainment. So in some countries, we were able to benefit from um, the um, footprint of the of the group. It was always a help anyway because they help in the admin and financial part of it. Yeah. So that was a big yeah. help. But from an operational side, we really had to uh, win every single client. And the way we did it fast was to have a global team uh, working with me uh, centrally. And what we did with this global team is we we kind of, as, as a task force, went to every new country as soon as we have found the right manager to start it up and help him or her to uh, win its first clients for the first six months, I would right. say, right. And, and, and giving him all the tools, methodologies, templates, but also working with some of our clients to open new markets. And one of them, which has been absolutely uh, central for us was Coca-Cola mm. because we, we we managed to be really close to their uh, global uh, HQ in Atlanta 
and we uh, work very well with their uh, France uh, activities, of course. But step by step, what we did was learning from uh, the brand in France and in the US, we could give tips to the local team to pitch for a piece of the business. And after a few um, years, I would say, we had something like five or six countries running Coca-Cola campaigns. So we started to be a really um, uh, recognized by uh, Coke as, as an agency of reference. And that helped us to win businesses across 25 countries. So we had local Coca-Cola business across 25 countries. And we were helped also by the global ad Coke, who thought it was a good way for them to also educate and help their local teams. So that was a real uh, driver for our growth. And of course, Coke is always a great brand to have when you start in a country because people absolutely. would believe they absolutely. have chosen uh, people who know what they talk about. Yes, yeah, yeah absolutely. Coca-Cola is, uh, Coca is a tremendous uh, reference. Um, now, what, what I wanted to talk a little bit about as well, and because I do remember now uh, coming back to me uh, from our earlier conversations, and you know, I think we probably connected the first time around 2010 maybe uh, where we actually had a partnership for a while um, I remember working yes. with a couple of your guys there uh, great yeah, as I said you had a really good team there um, especially obviously certain things in Asia etc um, and obviously but you did as you mentioned you did acquire quite a few companies around the world as well uh, maybe just one or two sort of uh, bigger ones or, or anyone would recognize of the, the ones you guys bought and, and then integrated into the business well Yes, well, what I can mention, because that was a big success and actually it's linked with Coca-Cola, is a, a company called Ignition. Mm -hmm. They were the mm -hmm. uh, family-owned business based in Atlanta, and what they did was they started uh, with Coke back in '96 with the Olympic torch relay, mm -hmm. and they mm -hmm. um, run experiential um, capabilities, and they were really able to help Coke to uh, uh, implement the activation of their uh, bigger rights. And they started with the uh, Olympic torch relay. So it was really every um, Olympic games, they plan how to uh, bring the torch everywhere in the world and, right. and activate right. the, the, the Coke system. Mm -hmm. And then they, right. they, they won the um, FIFA World Cup Trophy Tour. So they also uh, had this uh, very important platform built for Coke, yeah. where, you know, the yeah. uh, FIFA World Cup Trophy Tour was traveling in a plane yeah. Uh, yeah. to every country or even more countries that participated in the um, World Cup so they could extend the activation to the world mm. every, um, uh, and, and that was at each uh, step, uh, a big event in the in, for the local community of fan Uh, soccer fans and, you know, having the World Cup with the FIFA ambassadors and so forth. Yeah. So this company yeah. was uh, run from Atlanta with more or less 50 people. And um, we acquired it, integrated in, into uh, Hava Sports Entertainment. And that was our, um, let's say, uh, way to also pitch for, for bigger, bigger business. Uh, they had a branch in the UK that we merged with another acquisition we made, Cake. Cake Entertainment yes. was one of the leaders uh, in uh, brand uh, entertainment. Yeah. I, I don't know if yeah. you remember them. Yeah. They were really, really yeah. very uh, savvy in yeah, uh, the way of group music. Mm. Yeah. So we, with that in our hands, were able to really uh, uh, grow uh, our capabilities. And then we went uh, also to um, expand 
this uh, skill set across the, the the different agencies we had in different countries. Yeah, because yeah, I think you started off as Hava Sports, and then the entertainment part came a bit later, right? That was. Uh, uh, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, when when I joined Sachin, uh, when I joined Havas, um, I I, uh, I was really I, I've I've already done a lot of things in entertainment before that, but when I joined Havas, there was really the 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 focus on sports when and when actually uh, the digital component came at play, and I think this is the uh, first internet uh, burst like the end of 90s beginning of 2000 yeah. it was clear that yeah. content was a driver and in content i re I, I knew that from video gaming to um, um to uh, uh music and and um video con video uh, um, uh, footage we could play with the uh, internet so that's where we realized that was a, a a great thing to also learn and know better about the uh entertainment world and bring it back to the core of our business and actually in 2002 one of the big thing we did for coke and i think one of the thing i really liked was to uh in fact, they had these rights to um, play the game, uh, to, to, to have a game just before the official game started at the FIFA World Cup. They did that in France, actually, with mm. young kids who play the game uh, in the stadium. Mm -hmm. You remember that? Yes. But they couldn't do that in uh, Asia because in Japan and in Korea, it was too wet and the pitch would have been ruined by the, by the kids. Okay. Uh, before the game. So we had to find a solution and that's where we decided to have a virtual World Cup with the first ever deal with uh, EA Sports and uh, the FIFA game. Right. And so we had uh, young kids playing FIFA game on big screens during the uh, uh, preliminary uh, uh, stage, the warm-up of the real game. And that was the first time that was organized as at a global level a kind of e-sport contest mm. and um, and we also had the brand coca-cola embedded into the game that was the first time that there was a kind of a in-game advertising so that was back in 2002 so that also opened our, uh, our our eyes about the fact that we had to be much more hybrid and not just treat sports as a silo but as one of these entertainment uh, space where uh, many elements could be mixed and 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 uh, and leveraged. Yeah, I mean, it, again, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong here. The way I would describe Havas um, Sports Entertainment is really, you guys are an activation um, and execution agency, right? You help brands who've already, let's say, made a commitment. Uh, maybe in some cases, you probably help brands also before they made the commitment, right? I'm sure you did probably. Be, uh, you help them figure out whether they should be in the sports, uh, but you were not really in the selling space, right? Or did you ever really sell rights as well? No, we were in the buying space. <laughs> we <laughs> yeah. did not sell, but we bought. And we spent quite a lot of efforts to help brands to, uh, you know, um, acquire the assets, evaluate and, and have right. some uh, a rationale. And But we did a lot of negotiation um, with the, the likes of... Uh, uh, the IOC, uh, FIFA, and uh, the America's Cup, and, and many others, the, the different leagues, right. on behalf of our clients. Correct. We, we were not just on the client side. Right. Correct. Yeah, Correct. but also offering some uh, new concept. I just want to have um, one example here is Riviton. Mm -hmm. They were not in uh, 
sports apart from the America's Cup. I knew them for a long time because they were already there. That was their first year with the America's Cup in 1983 when I started. Mm. But then they became my client for many years with the Louis Vuitton Cup and the uh, the the um, you know the partnership. But that for them it was just the world of the America's Cup that fits with the Louis Vuitton. They didn't think about that as a sport. And what we managed to do was to think about okay now that. Sport is universal now that it became much more upmarket. Now that Louis Vuitton is sold to the world, your clients are the one who are attending the final of the football uh, FIFA World Cup, and yes. you should really yes. not forget that you need to get closer to to your clients. So that's when we negotiated with FIFA the uh, possibility for Louis Vuitton not to have a traditional package of sponsors, but create. Uh, a new asset, which was this uh, trophy case, yes. and that was yes. for the uh, FIFA World Cup 2010 in South Africa, and we had for the first time the the FIFA World Cup uh, that was packed in a in a yeah, in a travel case, a Vuitton travel case, That's presented right. just before the kickoff of the of the of the match, and we had a, a, a beautiful model yeah. uh, dressed in a Louis Vuitton dr uh, dress, you know, showing it with. Uh, 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 with, with the with the the former actually the former skeeper of the of the winning team uh, uh, was okay. the one who presented. Yeah, I, the I actually I remember that well. And and again, like you said, I mean, first of all, the whole world is watching at that time, right? You have I don't know hundreds of millions of people around the world on the, watching there on their TV. Uh, great moment for, for Louis Vuitton and it fits so well, right? The, having a suitcase and, and of course Louis Vuitton has gone beyond that now, right? Uh, they've done a deal, is it with League of Legends as well, where they, the trophy is now runs around in the suitcase too, or correct, right? Yes, exactly. And it's actually has been broken by Havas and uh, the, the, my, my former teams are still there. Uh, so okay. I'm quite proud of that. And actually, yeah, that's cool. uh, this is a. Uh, it's not stop. It's, it's not limited to just two things. In the in the in the meantime, they had also truck deals with the Ryder Cup, with uh, the French Open, with many others because the the concept has been yes. um, expanded. But but what I wanted to say is that our insights and strategy sometimes created special relationship with um, stakeholders, mm -hmm. uh, which was not about selling their assets, but buying them or sometimes offering new ways to, con to connect brands. So mm -hmm. we had a lot of work. I, I've, I've worked a lot with many of the right holders, but in a different way than the traditional uh, uh, selling uh, uh, activities. Interesting, interesting. So I'm assuming, you know, and I think you kind of alluded to it earlier. So they bought 51%, um, but I'm assuming there was an earnout. So over a period of time, you know, you they, they how I owned owned everything, right? And and you were, uh, is that is that's how it sort of ended up? Um, eventually, that they they bought the whole thing. When you know, I I, I mentioned the uh, difficult time in the beginning to uh, bring together uh, the different companies into one bigger company. Mm. So at that moment, we had to find a deal to really uh, uh, mitigate some of the things. So at, after a few years, I was um, not um, shareholder anymore, and I became an entrepreneur. Mm. <laughs> so that's when uh, Bonore came. I was. Uh, just, uh, um, I, 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 it was not my company anymore. It was really Havas who own it. Uh, but I kind of had the, um, 
freedom to to grow it and to uh, manage it as as a standalone network so it was really a great time even if it was not exactly as if i had created my own uh, asset yeah, yeah. No, i love it and and again i mean you know any anyone in the industry been long enough around would have come across hava sports uh, entertainment in one form or shape but you guys were all over the world and and you you worked at the biggest events you know from the fifa world cups to uh, I think you did work with the NBA and NFL and Premier League, so uh, I'm sure you had many folks touch many touch points there. And, and again, we, we probably could talk the entire podcast just on Havas because it is a, uh, such a big agency. <laughs> But uh, we do have a few other things I wanted to cover because there's a lot more interesting part to it. So I, I kind of want to move on. Unless there's any last sort of really amazing one which you feel uh, you wanted to share as a story of something you guys did. Um, otherwise, I, I want to start talking a bit about Vivendi here. Well, one word. I just uh, uh, we were we we were close to the French uh, Olympic uh, uh, efforts for the um, for, for for the um, for the bids, and mm -hmm. we lost many times. <laughs> okay. So uh, one of the loss was uh, preceded by a great uh, victory or great great event. We organized an amazing event on the Champs Elysees that really struck the imagination of the world a month before the Singapore vote. Uh -huh. And at that time, Paris became an Olympic city. And, you know, we had a giant track, uh, athletic track ah, uh, yes, on I the Champs Elysees. Yeah. You remember that. So yeah. that was something I was yeah. really proud of because we thought we did all what we could do, but it was just France. And that was in 2005. And that's when in Singapore, we were obviously beaten by a much stronger, much more organized and, and much better um, influential uh, uh, um, com uh, competitor, the, the, the UK. And I realized that, in fact, France will never win if there was no better organized influential network around the world. So that's Uh, loss in 2005 was a really uh, for, for me it was a, a, a kind of epiphany about the fact that I needed to create a network that would really help um, uh, the uh, France uh, influence in sports to grow in the world and so yeah. I think that if we have won the Olympic Games for 2012 maybe I would have stayed in France and kept the agency uh, as a domestic one because we would have been very busy with Olympic Games. The fact that we lost was for me a great uh, chance. And actually the Olympic Games in 2012 was a great inspiration for me. I realized our London was the center, the center of the world. So I moved to London <laughs> and right, yeah. I spent the next six yeah. years in London and working with my British colleagues and, and friends over there and also learning a lot from this very dynamic and a fantastic city. I loved being in London. Uh, I was very depressed because I was there as well when they voted Brexit and all the rest of it. Mm. Mm. But when we came, and that's the last thing I wanted to say about this moment, I was very uh, proud of what we did at that time because honestly, Havas was known, but it was not a, a big agency uh, in the eyes of the of the Brits, they had their own uh, marketplace. But we there was this big uh, bid organized by Barclays, the Barclays Premier League at that time. And um, yeah. David Weldon, who is an uh, iconic uh, CMO, was the CMO of Barclays at that moment. Mm -hmm. And he had mm -hmm. organized this uh, with 20 uh, contenders. And we were, the, I think, the 19, 19th on their list. 
<laughs> of invitees. <laughs> okay. And and okay. we won. And we won this one. And we became the agency of records for Barclays. Uh, right. They had for their activation. Six agencies. They wanted to have only one. So it was a great uh, moment for me, and we brought a lot of our ideas about uh, content and strategy to that market. Mm. So, um, yeah, it was... And the uh, activation was uh, in the UK or worldwide, or where, where was the role you guys were playing? It was worldwide, but that it was mainly in the UK because uh, the Premier League... Uh, Uh, but but we our remit was global, mm -hmm. but the the, the the most important uh, element for them was in the UK and the relationship with the Premier League and the content and everything. Right, right. Yeah, and again, you know, we we can spend another hour on that. I'm sure there's some great stuff about how Barclays obviously drew, you know used the Premier League uh, globally and how it really became synonymous there. Um, uh, but you know, as that we we won't have all that time right now. We'll save that for another day. Um, now. You know, again, not everyone knows that Havas obviously is owned by the larger Vivendi group, which, uh, you know, encompasses many other parts of the puzzle, you know, Universal Music, Canal Plus, um, and the gaming world, they own Gameloft, um, and I believe some parts of Ubisoft as well, uh, if I read that correctly, uh, and a few other things. So, you know, how did you then, you know, transition from, let's say, a part of the group into the larger group as then uh, the chief marketing officer and, and also the CEO of Copyrights Group? How did that sort of come about? Well, while at Havas, actually, Vincent Bolloré was the um, uh, main shareholder of Havas, mm -hmm. and his son, Yannick Bolloré, is the current uh, chairman and CEO, actually, and he has worked, uh, we have I've worked a lot with him as well. And they are, they were interested in media, investing in media. The Bolloré group is a very strong uh, um, uh, group with a, a lot of capital, so they, they were uh, interested to expand the Havas remit to uh, a, a bigger part of the of the ecosystem and in fact having worked a lot on sports entertainment having uh, also uh, won quite a significant international new business pioneering innovative solutions in uh, in in branded content in um, in experiential marketing in elements that really uh, play with those stakeholders uh, and that was uh, the um, way for us to, um, let's say, um, uh, get a sense of how powerful this industry could be. So when Bonore decided to uh, take over Vivendi, he gathered a small task force with him, including his son Yannick, uh, Dominique Delport, who was the head of media at that moment, and me, uh, and a couple of others, to help him to look into uh, Vivendi assets and see what could be uh, done in order to, to unlock the potential of that uh, uh, company that was at that moment a little bit uh, diverse and less uh, centered around entertainment. There was also a technology, there was telco as well. Mm. So um, mm. I participated in task force. And that is something I did in parallel with my job at Havas. I see. Uh, but uh, I see. step by step, it became obvious that he needed somebody uh, with him full time. And so he asked me to, tra to transition from uh, Havas to Vivendi. And actually, uh, 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 Vivendi took over Havas few months later. So it was like, uh, I was like uh, one of the um, pioneers of uh, <laughs> the Havas era of Vivendi. Uh, but uh, 
Uh, now Havas is completely integrated in Vivendi anyway. So yes, it, it was a very different role for me because uh, as I said, I was an entrepreneur and I run a, a small group of people around the world. So it was very agile, very uh, uh, light in a way, even 600 people. It was not 600 people in a, in a blow. It was people yeah. Uh, yeah. in small, um, let's say the, the biggest agency was maybe uh, France with 120 people, but the rest yeah. was really 30 yeah. people, 20 yeah. people, 15 yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. Here, we are talking about a 43,000 people uh, group. Mm. And I've been appointed as a CMO of the group. So my job was really to uh, try to... Um, uh, um, bring together the different parts of the group in a more integrated manner. Uh, so the, the marketing integration of Vivendi main division, Universal Music Group, Canal Plus Group, Havas, Gameloft, uh, Vivendi Village, Daily Motion, uh, was uh, all about trying to streamline brand marketing organizations, setting, setting up coordination processes and teams, um, mutualizing consumer data and intelligence. And, and so this was very much, um, uh, it was very different. The only thing that I tried to bring with me from my uh, experience was more to work on a proof of concept and have very practical operations to bring people together instead of you know having uh, uh, consulting firms like the um, BCG or PwC of this world right. uh, re-engineering right. the whole structure. The idea was more to learn by doing and test and if we failed we fix and if we um, succeeded then we could um, motivate people to follow the path but it was very okay. much uh, this kind of uh, approach so I even if the overall company was very different my role was still to uh, pitch people to convince them as they would be my clients actually they were my colleagues but mm. it was more internal but still picture. quite uh, a lot of marketing work yeah Interesting. Yeah, because that, that was sort of just listening to you here, thinking, where do you even start with a company like this, right? I mean, there's so many facets to it and, and very different pieces to the puzzle, right? From music to games to, you know, uh, to, a, to a TV channel. I mean, how on earth do you, where do you even start there? I mean, you know, you just ended up running around and meeting everyone first and then figuring out what, what they're all, which direction that everyone is running or where, how did you even start there? Well, that's what that's one of the things you have to do. You have to meet people. Well, the good thing is that I was uh, I was um, uh, close to the head, so it was uh, it opened a lot of doors. So I met the top guys very quickly and 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 their t and their key teams. But trying to do something more practical, actually, there was one thing that I, I that struck my imagination was it was a very much uh, a B two C uh, group, but they had no uh, apart from Havas, obviously, there are no B two B business music. Uh, uh, movie production, um, gaming, um, all that was very much, everyone was uh, dealing with their own consumers. Mm. And I realized mm. that when I, in my experience, when we had a client, the client was very uh, strict on uh, us uh, delivering the right approach with um, uh, kind of a, w w when we worked together with Havas and we were different agencies pitching for the same clients, we had to align our our slides. <laughs> we had yeah. to have the same slide to address the same client. So I tried to do the same using a third party to bring people to uh, the same alignment. So we started the Vivendi for Brands concept, uh, starting discussion with the likes of uh, Red Bull or Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. So I had those meetings mm -hmm. with Red Bull or Coke, 
meeting every single part of the group and people realized that they were asking the same questions. So answering to the same questions meant that we started to find the commonalities in the different uh, approaches, the way people could give some uh, uh, proper uh, assets like insights, data, uh, consumer analysis. So we started to have some kind of a lo a common language um, and that helped a lot to bring all those different way of doing it uh, to the same uh, to the same pattern to the same template. So uh, using a third party is always something helpful within a group where people feel very independent from each other, which is um, quite relevant because they all know very well their market. Mm. But in fact, at the mm. end of the day, if you have to present to somebody who have their own uh, vision, then it's better. And the second thing, of course, is to be thinking about the synergies and how we could create uh, a better use of everybody's experience for the other. So that's why we also, on the B2C side, so that the proof of concept we could have was to have one uh, single IP that could be played by everyone. Uh, so everyone would have their own uh, field of play, but at the, at the core, there was the same IP. And that uh, drove the acquisition of Paddington as our kind of proof of concept for the B2C uh, element. So uh, with this, we, we could use this IP as the starting point of the value chain. So from the um, design and uh, story writing to then the production of different type of content. So uh, TV series, uh, box office, movie production, uh, gaming, um, music, soundtrack and uh, music festival, music, uh, musical and, and uh, licensing products as well. And all those elements with the same point of entry, which was the same character and the same story around that character, mm. helped everyone to yeah. also meet the same kind of deadlines because we tried to coordinate and synchronize the um, uh, the go-to market of those different products, those different content, so we could have a campaign. So the inspiration is Disney. They invented that back in the 1930s. I'm, I'm always so impressed by the vision of uh, Walt Disney when he, when he drove what uh, actually uh, connection between the, all the assets of his uh, uh, empire was already act, uh, um, uh, efficient, so efficient during the uh, early days. But now on the same template, you can exactly draw the same map and have all your divisions working together. And I think that what, what maybe Disney is becoming too big now to do that, but we were small enough with Vivendi to bring everyone together and, 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 um, and really try to do something like that. We also now, had... Um, sorry, let me jump in for a second because I, I want to make sure when you say Pennington, let's, uh, let's specify, spell actually out what it is because I'm not sure everyone knows them, right? So this is the Pennington Bear, right? If I, am I correct? Yes, Paddington Bear. And uh, Paddington you know, anyone who's ever been to the UK, you know, you see this, of course, uh, all over the place uh, in uh, souvenir shops and other places. Now, I have to admit, I don't know how big it is anywhere else in the world, whether it's France or the rest of the world. Uh, who? And so I had two questions here. One is, who owned it? Who, who was the? Uh, who actually owned the, the the license or the the the, the IP of of Pennington Bear? Where does it originate from? I'm assuming from the UK, but 
It was created by a British man who, who uh, sadly died uh, a couple of years ago at uh, age 93, but he created Paddington. His name is Michael Bond, and he created Paddington back in the 50s. Right, and he was a, a, a book writer. And Paddington started as a, as a, as a bestseller for, for kids, and he uh, wrote 15 books where he told the story of this young Peruvian bear that was uh, uh, an immigrant in the in the in London right. and became more British than any British <laughs> okay <laughs> he's uh, he 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 doesn't exactly know what he does so he's learning all the time and he's learning but he's somebody who is really kind and good so the values of Paddington are very positive right. but he's been right. um, cheered by uh, kids all over the world is very anglo-saxon in the first place mm. but what we did was we hired so to to answer your question so michael bond uh, had his own um uh, family business and he uh, he sold us uh, the uh, uh ip mm -hmm. so we we bought the ip but the books but so so we we bought every element of the ip from filmmaking to uh, licensing to uh, uh, everything with the character, but the books that are still in his family. Right, got it. Okay, so interesting. Okay. Now, now again, you know, your Vivendi is very French. Let's put it this way, right? It's a very big, strong French company, and you're buying a British IP. How does that work? <laughs> so, to, to well, use that as a case study. Vivendi is not that French. The largest asset is Universal Music Group. It is driven from uh, by a British guy, uh, Solution Grant from Santa Monica. So the group is very global. Right. But you're right. It was uh, it was a uh, strange for many people that it was a French-owned company that uh, believed in the uh, British icon, especially in the time of the Brexit. But um, no, what we thought is was one of the very few IP that was not a Disney IP, hmm. that was not uh, owned by the ma the other majors, the Warner and uh, and, and and Sony, right. and that we right. could um, uh, we could uh, help thrive we felt very close to uh, uh the british culture actually it's more for us it's more european uh, what, what we tried to do was to have a kind of a an alternative to the uh, american culture yeah, from europe and europe. we believe that uh, paddington is very european in its heart and it's in its DNA. So that's why we were really interested by Paddington. Um, and also we thought that we could help Paddington to thrive because we had the proper skill set. So the first step was a, a, a popular movie and we hired David Heyman, the Harry Potter um, producer. So he has, he's, he's, a, he's a genius in creating a world from a, from a book. Yes. He has proven yes. it with the Harry Potter saga. And David Heyman helped us to um, create an amazing uh, film. Actually, we produced two films with him. And he also hired the high-tech visual effects frame store. So the character became a, a a CP um, a computer uh, generated uh, image at CGI, mm -hmm. uh, but but mm -hmm. this uh, made Paddington um, accessible to the rest of the world. And with uh, Studio Canal uh, International Footprint, we were able to sell the the film very well in Asia, in China and Japan, especially. 
but also in Latin America, in the rest of Europe, in Germany, in France, obviously, in Spain. So with with our, um, let's say, um, distribution power with Studio Canal, we could really uh, help uh, Paddington to become much more popular than in the traditional uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon world. And from there, we uh, leveraged that with um, a new uh, deal with Nickelodeon to produce a TV series that has been launched after I left, actually, uh, but that was in the making. Um, so now it's also a character for kids in the cartoon uh, network all over the world. So, um, it, and, and the last bit, which I should, should have quoted uh, also, is Gameloft, who mm. created a game. Yeah, you know, Gameloft are... Uh, they are the producer of the Minions, for example, right. and this kind of uh, Disney or Universal Studios uh, iconic characters that are, you know, on uh, on free uh, game on uh, mobile, especially. So yes. we had the Paddington Run game that went very well as well, who, which helped also Paddington to be very uh, uh, accessible for the younger generation. So this all character became very modern and very well marketed. And that, of course, attracted a lot of um, deals with uh, brands and um, and licenses yeah. around the world. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Uh, and, and, but before, and before we move on, and because I really want to uh, touch a bit on the couple other things you are doing right now as well, which I think is just uh, great stuff, uh, which I really want our listeners to hear. Uh, but I do, obviously, Vivendi was involved in the Olympic bid for Paris 2024, which then... France finally won. Um, you know, so yeah. maybe that hardship which you had to go through with Havas, uh, you, you it finally came all through. Just just a quick one on that. Um, what was the involvement? Uh, were you just a, a sponsor or partner of the local bid committee, or or how did how far did the relationship go? Well, my personal story means that I knew very very well the the the, the leadership team. Uh, Tony Estanga is a good friend. We worked together for many years. Etienne Tobois, the CEO, I've worked with him on the previous bit. So I, I was I was much closer than just a sponsor. I was responsible for uh, Vivendi to to bring our financial support, but not only. We we mobilized Canal Plus. So um, my friend who worked with me for many years, Thierry Schellman, who is a sports director at Canal Plus, uh, helped a lot with all the teams, the journalists, the, 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 to, to support the bid. We, we also uh, mobilized um, our other branch. So Universal Music Group played a great uh, role in uh, bringing uh, uh, artists to support the bid, to create uh, original soundtrack, to um, support the events as well. Gameloft created a game with uh, Teddy Riner uh, oh, running the streets oh. of Paris. Well, you guys, they went everywhere. Wow. Yes, and and we we also had Daily Motion to support the bid with uh, the the video uh, distribution. Mm. So actually, we we use it as as a. Um, as a way also to bring together the group. That was another idea, uh, more from uh, an internal standpoint, because uh, at that moment it was more uh, something to bring all the team together, but also to help the bid to win. Sure, uh, it's a great rally, rally and cry, right? If you can support the Olympics and you know bring that across exactly. the whole company, I can see that how that can bring people together and and really uh, bond. Uh, I like that part. Uh, now, quick one on. So, what do you think? France did right, or Paris it better did right this time versus the other ones. You know, where where do you see where if you look at it, uh, is there one or two things which 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 really made the difference this time? 
Well, I think the leadership made a big difference. I think the leadership was driving it, not the politicians. Okay. <laughs> the, the, what happened in the past was very much, people forgot in France that it was an international bid that you had to talk to the IOC and the IOC members, that you had to convince the international federations, and that you had to play with the marketing tools around. And people were more in the internal uh, traditional political battles where, you know, the mayor of Paris is fighting the president, Who's fighting the whoever the the, the other uh, representants? So this time everybody aligned behind uh, the leadership team, which was driven by our SEPCO, Tony Estanguet, mm-hmm. and that made a huge difference. Um, and I think that we had the full support and alignment of the political parties. I realized that they, there was no uh, way France would do that if there was not an alignment. So. The mayor of Paris and the French president, first of all Hollande and then Macron, because he just came in at the last moment. But mm-hmm. what he did was very important. He came to Lausanne himself and yes. and and really yes. pitched for for the event. Um, and I think that there have been a great support from the whole uh, France uh, economy uh, and and major. Um, major brands really supported it. So I think that it's a question also of maturation. Yeah. I think that the maturity yeah. of sports marketing in France is much higher now than it has never been. Mm. So that's why this mm. bid was more prepared and could win. And even in the discussion with Los Angeles, because that was part of the win. I mean, if, if we would not have made a deal with Los Angeles, that would have been more complicated. Right. I think that uh, right. it was a, a sign of maturity and, and cleverness to uh, for, from both sides. And actually, just for the for the for the record, but it's interesting to know that uh, Universal Music Group was a sponsor of Los Angeles 28. So from uh, my position, uh, I was also in a possib- in a in a position to you know connect the dots in a way mm. and had. Right. Uh, informal discussions with uh, LA uh, to 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 make sure that it could work for both sides and it does work. So it's quite interesting. So yeah, Vivendi was true. was supporting Paris and Universal Music was supporting in the US Los Angeles. So for us, it was really good that the two parties became really um, um, organized and 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 worked together. Love it, love it. And you know, and we're, I'm fingers crossed. In 224, the world is a little more back to normal, and, and we can have an Olympics rather than uh, what's obviously currently happening here in Tokyo. And and I don't want to go there right now because I, I still want to touch on a few other things here. As much as that, you know, it is an obvious segue into talking a bit about uh, what we're expecting here this year, but none of us know. So uh, <laughs> I think it's the usual guesswork there. Um, so, you know, what I've seen here really, you know, again, looking at uh, your LinkedIn profile uh, is that, you know, I would say then in the last couple of years, you've really gotten involved in a host of other things, right? So I think, that, you know, after maybe you've you moved into Vivendi, um, maybe there was a bit of extra spare time there to, to also go into things which, you know, maybe you had a passion for and or, or you saw some new opportunities. And, and I just want to you know, touch on a couple here. I mean, one is, of course... Uh, I'm not sure if I pronounce it properly. Sposara, Sposora, um, I guess, which is sort of a French organization for for sports experts and, and marketing, etc. Uh, but that's more of an organization, I guess, where you maybe you're a member and, and you're participating. But you've also launched the Global Sports Week, and you know, again, recently, um, you know, or let's say early last year, you got involved in the inspiring sports capital, and and I leave the the last one for for later, um, where you just joined as chairman. 
Um, let's talk about sports weeks and sparring sports capital. Um, you know, tell us a bit about you know both of those, how it started, and how it all links to everything we've already heard here over your last thirty years in the industry. Well, actually, yes, uh, it's, it's linked with my <laughs> my my experience. I've met so many people around the world and so many different type of people involved in sports. I realized that somehow uh, a lot of those people knew each other, but not all of them. There were some silos. Um, the world of soccer on the one hand, the world of the Olympics on the other one, the world of Formula One, the America's Cup, the Asian part of the world, the, 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 the European part. And also you had brands and, um, you know, real professional of, uh, trading rights that were not really interacting. There had no reason to because there was no place to, to do so. And, and I do attend a lot of those international forums that I like very much and I, uh, admire a lot like Sportel, Sportacore, uh, SoccerX, right. but there, some people are, you can see a few of us and you are part of them actually, Marcus, <laughs> who are kind of going to each of them, but there are not so many people. Yeah. Each, each of the time yeah. you find different type of people for the governance of sports, for the theory rights. So I realized that it was interesting to bring together all people that I met that have an influence on the future of sports and also give sports uh, a, a platform to uh, uh, have a more in, uh, uh, to, to, to be high on the agenda of the other part of the of society and business. Um, I tested this concept um, almost 10 years ago because we created Global Sports Forum in Barcelona. Actually, I did that with um, late uh, Juan Antonio Samaran Senior, oh, when he wanted yeah. to find a legacy for Barcelona 92 and that drove the the Global Sports Forum Barcelona as a kind mm -hmm. of a place mm -hmm. to uh, bring people together and think about sports important issues yeah, at that yeah, time. I remember but, that actually. <laughs> but, but when I left to um, uh, London, I had no more time to do that and uh, it went, it just disappeared. There was a change in the mayorship of uh, Barcelona that went very Catalan and they were less interested in a global event as well. So um, that was a great experience and it, and I realized that in a few years it has not been replaced by something else. There was the Doha goals for a while, uh, but, but that was very more, I mean, it was more local than global, I think, or more regional, I would say. So it was, there was a space for something and then Paris, to host the Olympic Games, I thought that it was maybe the time for Paris to propose right. an right. annual rendezvous that could be inspirational, that could be influential, that could be uh, helping business, bringing together the international sports ecosystem and, and society's leaders. And so that, and also um, a pitching stage for a promising startups, because that's a new angle for sport with the sport tech world coming right. together. Right. So, um, we we pitched the idea to um, different people and we uh, got the high patronage of French President Macron mm. and with the support of uh, institutions like UNESCO but also international sporting organizations like um, UEFA, F1, uh, FIBA and so forth, we, we, we realized that it was quite a, an interesting thing that people were expecting. So we put this together as a, as a yearly rendezvous that is uh, a little bit different from other platforms as it is very horizontal and it's really looking forward. The idea is really to, uh, our motto is share, shake and shape the future of sport. Right. And the idea right. is to uh, 
let's say, bring people together, but also challenge the status quo and have the younger generation. And we have the young sports makers, young people participating and also um, challenging the uh, speakers of more established organization live to really help looking forward and trying to um, identify the issues, but also find solutions yeah. and do yeah. that in a, in a quite a business minded way. Interesting. Yeah. And I remember watching some of it. Now I have to admit, you started this in 2019 or 220. When was the first one? Uh, the first one was 2020. 2020. It happened okay. just, uh, just before the lockdown. <laughs> right, right. We okay. brought 2,000 people coming from 70 countries in Paris, the in the Louvre. Yes. Uh, it was That's in right. February a year ago, and that was the very first. So yes, right. we, just uh, met, we met just slightly before that. That's why I remember I couldn't attend it because I was just in Europe at that time. Now, we should mention, of course, that your next one is coming up, right? February 1st to 5th um, is uh, round two. Now, I'm assuming it's going to be a very digital affair. I'll talk a bit about it real quick. Yeah, well, actually, what we did was to, uh, I mean, when we realized that it was not possible to do a second uh, edition as we did, impossible to bring people together right now, we decided to go where the people were, where the conversation is, where the future of sport is being made. Mm -hmm. And like Paris, there are five other cities that are going to host Olympic um, events. And when you have to host an Olympic event, you need to really think through new technology, new models, new solution, being innovative and also be bold. So that's why we decided to have not only one event, but to synchronize six events, oh, Paris wow. at the center. Oh, wow. And that is going to be on the Eiffel tower. So we go from the Louvre to the Eiffel tower. It's going to be a big studio okay. there to okay. host our speakers. And they will have conversation with other panels held in, um, Tokyo. Uh, Beijing, uh, Los Angeles, Milan, and Dakar for the Youth Olympic Games. Wow. So we have those six wow. cities connected to Paris through a, a, a big immersive um, uh, digital platform that is going to help people uh, following uh, 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 great speakers' um, discussions about uh, major issues of sports and, of course, discussion about the future of sports. Our, our uh, topic is reinvention in action. The idea is really to not uh, uh, look uh, backward, but look forward and try to find solutions for sports to bounce back. So it's all about, uh, you know, uh, how, how, how sports models can evolve, how the new generation will tell us about um, more relevant co um, uh, ways to, to, to bring uh, people to sport, how to connect uh, sports grassroots and professional sports, how to evolve in the digital world, how to evolve in a more um, climate-friendly world. I mean, a lot of those things that we are working on. Uh, and, and what is great is that there is a, a, a fantastic lineup of uh, speakers that are going to bring their expertise and experience to to our, um, to our audience. So it yeah. goes from Gérard Piquet. JRPK is coming not only as a footballer, obviously, but the founder and president of yes. Cosmos. Yes. He has raised billions. He's now driving not only uh, the uh, Davis Cup, but also he's uh, now investing in startups. So it's quite interesting to have him. Mm -hmm. But also somebody mm -hmm. like Kilian Jornet, you know, the uh, um, the amazing uh, Montanos uh, from, from Spain. And we will have uh, um, uh, uh, Marcus, uh, you, you know, Mark Tatum, 
the deputy uh, commissioner of the NBA. We will have, of course, Roxana Marasanianu, who is the. Uh, so, how do people, uh, besides Googling Global Sports Week, uh, what's the website? Is, is it just globalsportsweek.com yes, or, or where, how do I find How do anyone find it? Globalsportsweek.com. Okay. You can definitely register. Uh, it's it's uh, it's uh, happening from first uh, to five February, yep. and we will have uh, an amazing lineup of, of speakers and and great organization coming together, and that's um, yeah. I hope that you will enjoy it. I hope you will come. I will be um, there. I think it's a it's a it's a it's nice to have something happening. Uh, despite the situations where we can speak together and and plan for uh, a better future, but also act right now. Absolutely, no good stuff. Uh, hopefully, everyone made note of that, and and everyone and many of uh, the listeners will be joining you there. So let's talk a bit about inspiring sports capital because I remember when we spoke uh, a while back um, that you were working on on a fund concept uh, with some new funding in place, uh, again, somewhat linked a bit to the, to the Olympics and others. So, uh, but I haven't really heard much since then. Uh, so I'd, I'm equally curious to see what has transpired now and, and how you, how this company started because you have a partner there, right? I believe. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so Inspiring Sport Capital is a London and Paris based uh, private equity company mm. that I, I created with uh, Laurent Damiani, my partner. Right. Um, and we, we, we're dedicating to the sports industry, leveraging uh, our, our expertise in the business and our, our network and the evolution of its economic models and, and uh, to, to, to help those companies that we are targeting to grow. So we invest in buyout or, or growth equity situations. And our idea is to have a majority role and, and we have a long-term approach because we are supported by high net worth individuals, family, uh, multi-family offices as well, but also some, um, uh, we, we are part, part of our um, group of advisors are also some uh, uh, very um, experienced people from, from different uh, facets of the industry and, and top uh, uh, athletes as well. And, and beyond financial resource, what we do is create value uh, at NVST company by uh, offering uh, support in the different uh, level of, of growth uh, opening up to the digital transformation and, and mainly the international expansion. So we have already completed the six major investments so far, uh, investing over 75 million euros. So it's a club deal concept. So we have not locked down um, a committed uh, investment fund. It's um, it's a deal by deal. Right. Um, right. We've invested in a company called 52 Entertainment, which is actually a I would call it the esports for the uh, for for the for the elder generation. So it's a it's a it's a platform of uh, bridge online, oh, and right. we acquired oh. first Fundbridge, a French company, and then uh, it's a subscription-based web platform for card players, and then we acquired their uh, um, their, com their let's say competitors from the US BBO bridge-based mm -hmm. online that mm -hmm. we acquired from uh, Bill Gates actually, who was the main shareholder. He's a, a fan of bridge. Okay. Um, Played with uh, his mate uh, uh, Warren Buffett during yeah, the lockdown. Say, so, Warren Buffett, right? <laughs> exactly. So that's 
and and now the two companies merge uh, are called 52 Entertainment. So okay. we we did that with um, uh, HLD, which is a uh, uh, our main LP on this one. Uh-huh. Uh, we also acquired a company called Jointly uh, SIS uh, for uh, as a, a club management, you know, uh, grassroots clubs, mm-hmm. but that we have mm-hmm. already uh, sold to a BPC Group, the French bank. Um, we have um, a stake in. Um, um, the world's leading race yacht shipyard called CDK Technology. They are the one who cr- produce the uh, uh, carbon-made uh, uh, yacht that goes 50 knots around the world. So not the yeah. America's Cup yeah. yet, but the uh, Vendée Globe and all the um, uh, ocean race uh, type of yachts. Mm-hmm. The one that mm-hmm. are now flying with foils and um, amazing technology. So that's quite yeah. an interesting one. Small industry, and last but not least, uh, we have struck a deal with uh, Piggy Golf Challenge Duchel, which is a leading European wholesale golf equipment distributor, and we are building up this right now. It's quite interesting to see uh, how golf is evolving in the way people uh, get access to equipment, including mm-hmm. digital. So, as you can see, it's very diverse. Our idea is always to go to um, um, companies where we can provide a strong input in terms of our knowledge, our network, and our capability to find uh, uh, new um, uh, new leads for those companies. So the idea is to always uh, multiply the value of the company by uh, by two and a half and three over a period of five five to six years. Right. So it's a so you would call it a VC capital, right? Or is, or is it you would which which stage you investing in these companies? More private equity based and VC. So we're really more on growth than on VC. We can tap into the new tech startups, but only when we find the right uh, build up from uh, one of our companies. So um, we're more in the traditional sports trying to uh, uh, help those uh, brands to become more savvy in digital than going to pure players. Got it. Got it. Okay. Interesting. And um, But if, if, you know, if I remember, there, there was something about also sort of a bit of a focus uh, linking uh, investments with, with France, with the, uh, with the Olympics. Is that still part of it or that, that, is, that was a different idea and, and it's – or. No, 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 no. It's part of that. Uh, If you think about the different, what what we, what we have here is that we have companies that have a base in Europe. France is, let's say 50% of our uh, uh, position, but we, 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 we have a more European uh, wide base. uh, And what we want to do is to find uh, companies that can benefit from uh, the uh, momentum of the games and, and build uh, their growth on the back of this kind of, uh, uh, driver, so it's very much aligned with all the efforts that are made in in Europe and in France in the at the moment to really uh, uh, support the sports industry. Mm. People recognize that this is really something that has more impact on economy than ever. So we are trying also to uh, attract investors into that field, and 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 yeah, the uh, the Olympic mom- momentum is certainly something that helps to um to to grow practice of sport and hence the consumer uh, base and and the interest of investors makes sense makes sense now it, it, you know you're not a private equity guy um you're like me you're a sports guy so your partner is the the one who has the private equity experience or how do you how do you guys work 
he has worked uh, on private equity before I started because he started that a few years before, but he's, he has the same background as you and me. Okay. Uh, he used to run an agency. So both, but you know what? It's all about uh, <laughs> uh, your, our own experience. I, I've, I've acquired and, and merged and managed uh, something like 20 companies yeah. in my career. Yeah. Sure. Where whether sure. it was with Avas or Vivendi, so um, you know, um, negotiating uh, the acquisition of companies, putting it up, uh, is something that is really driven by your sense of entrepreneurship and 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 business. Yeah. The rest yeah. is more technical. So we have a team uh, that help us on the financial structure and the legal part of it, which right. is quite an important right. part. But for the rest, um, yeah, we, we drive it with our expertise of the sector. So in a nutshell, we would never be able to acquire company in another sector. And this right. is not our ambition. Right. Yeah. But in that yeah. sector, we with the right partner in, for the financial uh, side and our staff that we've uh, recruited, we are um, good enough to do that uh, uh, in, the, in the private equity field, which is not so complicated it's it's yeah. it's it's, it's yeah. i mean great to have people with experience and we use them but the most important thing is to you know choose r the right companies yeah. and right help companies. those companies to grow absolutely the, now, the transaction is just one thing so yeah you mentioned earlier that you you take majority right so which means in a, some sense you are taking a fairly uh active role in it you know so how what does that you know mean really for you you know you you sitting on the board of these companies yeah. and you're you daily you're weekly speaking with the ceos or well how, how does that sort of really show up yes exactly this is, this is exactly this you have a board we are uh, we, we are we are um, chairing the board and we also have a strategic uh, advisory board where we bring people together that helps to um, support the management team, mm. and we uh, we we help them on a weekly basis uh, to uh, make the right choices. We challenge them on some of the decisions they have to, to take, and we also uh, have a control on the um, uh, management accounts, and right. and we review right. those uh, uh, on a on a regular basis on behalf of our uh, investors. So yeah, we, it's exactly this kind of thing. But the difference maybe is that we are more proactive in the sense of uh, brainstorming with the teams on opportunities and also connecting with the right people um, at the network uh, level. So um, a bit less, more than just a, a quarterly uh, board. It's it's more intensive than that, but. It's also the way we can uh, unlock potential for those uh, management teams. Right, right. And so, like, you know, again, PE normally has, what, seven, ten-year kind of window um, for exit. Is that sort of, I guess, your basic strategy as well there? You look to, obviously, as you said, ramp it up, two, three X, um, and then either, yes. I guess, sell it on or, or other find other exits for them, right? Yeah, well, this is exactly the framework is five to ten years. Mm -hmm. uh, that's it. We we uh, have exactly the same model of uh, uh, value creation and and uh, the, the the commission we cut on it from our side from from our uh, company's side. But of course, it's really to create value for our LPs, and the time frame of five to ten years is the right one. We we have more long term vision. We we don't have any um, constraint as we are not structured as a as a fund. There is no uh, need to, um, uh, to 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 uh, you know to uh, to comply with a very strict 
time frame we, we can really evolve and if the exit is to merge with a bigger company and maybe take a, a minority stake after a while on a bigger company that is also part of the kind of thing we can do the lbo is also a great way to uh, to exit for us after a while if the management is really doing well right. and right. The, uh, um, the, the, we, we can find a, a great way to leverage the uh, uh, the uh, the asset of the company, then we can definitely do that as well. So we're very flexible and quite pragmatic on that sense. Mm, love it. Yeah, great. Well, we're looking forward to seeing more. Um, I'll definitely going to pay more attention to uh, the deals you guys are doing there, and then of course how the companies are doing. Um, and we're nicely coming really to an end here. Uh, you know, I, I figured this is going to be a good hour and a half conversation with the the amazing things you've all done. Uh, there's no way we cover that in an hour. So uh, I expected this, uh, and I really just wanted to quick have a last one here and you know you recently became the chairman of Fnatic uh, which is one of the top esports teams in the world out of the UK uh, you know one of the you know highest winning teams in the world um, you know anyone again in gaming or esports will recognize them um, how did that happen you know how do you end up in the world of gaming now here <laughs> well you know uh, when you when you start in, um, in the investment world, you 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 need to be very curious and look at what's happening. I mentioned that we had already invested in the esports for the elderly, yes. but the real esports is fascinating. It strikes my imagination, and actually, I've always been searching for what's next in our industry. Mm. Uh, and, and and so um, fostering innovation for, for, for my own business, but also for my clients. So uh, I, I was I was looking into um, esports to see if we could do something in terms of. Uh, uh, investment, mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. I realized that uh, Fanatic uh, at that moment was not really looking for investment yet, but was looking for a board member. So uh, it's uh, something that uh, I uh, thought that I could do, and and uh, from from board member they asked me to be uh, the chairman. So um, <laughs> uh, actually, I met the uh, CEO and founder Sam Matthews, who is a fantastic guy. He's a visionary. Uh, pioneer of um, esports. He started the team with his mother when he was something like 22 or something like that. Oh, right. um, originally from from Australia, and he is really uh, driving his team with a great uh, energy. But of course, he is now uh, facing every, uh, anything that uh, startup face at one point of time, which is scale and growth and yeah. how you deal with. Um, big, bigger issues with uh, the need to bring together uh, shareholders from uh, from a uh, uh, different kind of uh, background and also grow the company from where it is to a much bigger uh, turnover. So, so, so the company is about 15 million and the objective is to multiply this by 10 over the next five years. Yeah. So there is a five-year plan and my job is really to help the team to achieve those goals and of course lead the board where you find great entrepreneurs that have invested uh, in this uh, industry and uh, it's it's interesting to really see how fast this is going um, what they are looking for when they hire somebody like me is something they don't have so what they are not in need is somebody who is a specialist of e-sport because I'm not right. yeah. <laughs> so I must say I learn every day, yeah. um, and, and it's quite intense. Uh, and the pandemic has changed a little bit 
the model because as you uh, recall the, the esports have been very successful in bringing together people in arenas with yeah, hundreds so of thousands true. of followers it does not happen yet it's not possible so they have completely pivoted to the digital side of it which yeah. is already okay. part of it but uh, but the um, and and for me it's a complicated onboarding because I am in Paris, uh, the HQ is in London, and mm. because of the pandemic, it's very difficult to cross the channel. Believe it or not, when you don't live in the UK if, as a business traveler, you can't really go without spending a week in quarantine. Yeah, and coming yeah. back, it's exactly the same. So <laughs> I cannot cross the channel. But the rest of the team is very much working remotely as well. So um, it's it's a it's a digital relationship mostly for the moment, uh -huh. uh, which is something uh, of an experience as well because it's the first time that I join a company that I'm not even uh, in uh, uh, meeting people for real. Uh, it's interesting. As, it's interesting that you yeah. say that. Uh, I have a couple of new projects um, uh, uh, working with in in the Middle East, uh, Israel, etc. And it's a similar thing. We none of us have ever met face to face, um, and we're doing business together, and, and we become good friends in, in many ways. So it is possible, right? I mean, we always believe that you you had to see each other, right? You you know you had to kind of sit there and break bread or whatever. Uh, and I do believe it, you know it's still a very important part to the puzzle, of course. Uh, but I also think it shows that if you don't have the opportunity, well, you've got to make it work otherwise, right? And, and you can still get to uh, do business in that sense. So it's interesting that you mentioned that there. So well, again, we'll be watching fanatics a bit more. I, I'm, as you know, big into into the world of gaming, esports, with a host of different projects. So I'd love to pick your, you know, have another conversation with you offline here. Um, maybe there's some synergies there on things you guys are doing. Um, last question I forgot earlier to ask on, on Inspiring Sports Capital. Is the, the acquisition targets are all sort of, let's say, Europe, UK-based groups? Or are you looking global? Um, or or how's, what's the remit there? What we do is we try to start with companies based close to where we operate. Mm -hmm. And from those companies, we try to look at uh, build-ups. It's exactly what I, I mentioned with 52 Entertainment. So uh, it's very possible for us to look for targets outside of this European remit, but as long as it's a build-up from something we already operate. Right. The, the reason right. for that is that we need to have the uh, management team that we are um, uh, overseeing close to us right. uh, in terms right. of um, time timeline and that sort of things. We believe that it will be difficult to us to open offices uh, for the time being um, uh, elsewhere. So we, we prefer to uh, keep it closer to us. So it's not impossible to have a build-up in Asia, for example, but we won't start with a target in Asia. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that makes sense. Uh, perfect. Lucien, I think we're we're nicely got at the end here. I, I think we covered a really good ground, lots of great uh, information, and, and and I really like the way you explained your thinking of how all these different companies worked and um, and what worked, and in some degrees what didn't. Uh, you know, and, and the, the case studies there from Beddington Pear to a Beddington a Paddington Pear Bear, sorry Pear, uh, to <laughs> others. <laughs> um, you know, and of course, and as I said, I, I really wanted to make sure everyone understands some of the things you're doing right now. Um, you know, coming out of uh, you know Havas and Vivendi, and you, you're not there anymore, right? That's correct, right? You, you, you. No, no, no. I quit Vivendi a couple of years ago. That's why I started this Inspire Sport Capital as as my main. Uh, business and fanatic now as well. Right. And Global Sports Week is really something I'm doing 
um, to, to really contribute to the industry. So, um, but, but those are the three things I'm doing. Awesome, awesome. Well, I'm certain that it was keeping you busy, and it was very exciting to to hear your amazing journey here. You know, all the way from the from the America's Cup where we all started there. So, thank you so much for your time there. Have a good day in Paris. Stay safe, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Marcus, and congratulations on the podcast. And I hope that you will connect to Global Sports Week, and I hope that our audience today will connect to Global Sports Week and to. Uh, meet you all uh, in a couple of weeks um, uh, from now and uh, take care as well. Yeah, we will release Thanks. definitely before uh, your event. So hopefully that will motivate more folks to come and join you and listen in. Definitely. That's great. Thank you very much. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Cheers. Bye-bye. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Luer Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Luer. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.